Thanks, Aaron. Um, just fantastic to see God at work so powerfully in somebody's life. And uh, you see um, the transformational power of God at work. So it's awesome to see. Well, today we're looking at evangelism, uh, specifically conduct as evangelism. So what do you think of when you think of evangelism? For me, when I was young, I don't know how young I was, for some reason I, I had picked up this image of evangelism as perhaps walking down the street or uh, standing on a street corner, accosting strangers and thrusting a Bible into their face and telling them of their need to repent. Well, this is perhaps not the most helpful way to go about evangelism, although I have actually seen it done that way. But don't worry, we won't be sending you out into the street today. What we will do is look at some of the things that the letter of First Peter has to say about evangelism. But before we do that, let's start with a, a fundamental question. And that is, why? Why should we do it? Why should we evangelize? Well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, there's uh, the great rewards we will receive from doing this. But the, the primary reason is found in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28 where it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Um, again, when I was young, I thought there were only two states regarding belief. Either you believe or you don't. Either you're a Christian or you're not. And this... It's kind of daunting because if you think that if you're having a conversation with somebody and they're not a believer and you think that they need to go from belief across this giant chasm, sorry, non-belief across this chasm to belief, that puts a lot of pressure on you in having a conversation. You think you've got to do something amazing in that conversation. And it can be uh, a very daunting and demoralizing prospect. Well, what I realized is actually that's not a very helpful way to think about it. Um, where people are in their spiritual journey. It's actually not a very accurate way either. There's actually a lot of different steps that uh, we need to take on that journey, a lot of different states that people can be in. And one way to visualize this is through this scale called the angle scale. Has anybody come across that? The angle scale? Okay, so there's one there. Um, if we put that one up, if we can get the angle scale up on the screen, I think the guys are just working on it. So essentially, it looks at the different stages that people can be in, starting from um, perhaps complete unbelief, maybe having just sort of some vague awareness of a spiritual reality through to um, awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel to the implications of the gospel for your own life and then moving up to the realization of a need of change in your own life to the commitment to make that change and then then you become a new creation, and then on into um, discipleship. And the reason this is helpful is because it tells us that all people go on a journey or process on their way to conversion, and then on into discipleship. And in terms of having a conversation, it means that if you're having a conversation with someone, you don't need to move them from here all the way to here in one hit. Actually, if you just move someone one step along that journey, that has been a success. That has helped somebody move toward faith in Christ. 
<clears throat> Some key points that we'll look at today. One is that as a Christian, people notice your conduct, your behavior. Oh, we've got the scale there. There's, you can see there's... Um, a number of stages there, and there's some different versions of this angle scale. Some of them start at negative 10, where there's complete disbelief. And this one, as you can see, um, it goes up to positive 3 at the top. It actually goes further than that, but for the purposes of what we're talking about today, we're just looking at the idea that actually there's a lot of little steps that people take in their journey. But as a Christian, people notice your conduct. About 40 or 50, maybe 60 years ago, most people held a, to essentially, in the West, to roughly a, a Christian worldview. So if you were talking with them, they knew the fundamentals of Christianity. They might not go to church, but they kind of knew the fundamentals. Well, today it's very different. Today you'll come across people who have absolutely no idea what Christianity is all about. So if they find out you're a Christian, maybe you're working with them and they find out you're a Christian, how will they find out about Christianity? Well, they find out by watching your life, by watching how you respond in different situations. That's their window into Christianity and into God. And the good news is that your conduct can lead people toward faith in Christ. It can move people along that scale that we just looked at. So we're going to look today at a, a short passage from the letter of First Peter, which um, Aaron actually read from just before. We'll give some background to this. Um, in the letter of First Peter, Peter's writing around, um, most scholars think around 64 to 65 AD, to a group of Christians who are scattered among various provinces of Asia Minor. Now, this is not a geographical term that's used much these days, but it's basically modern-day Turkey with a few other areas around it. And these Christians are the minority within a Gentile population within the Roman Empire. Now, Peter's readers are being harassed or even persecuted by those who do not share their faith. Why is that? Well, primarily because, first of all, dedication to one and only one God. So the Romans of the days had many gods. There was Jupiter, Juno, Neptune, Minerva, Mars, Venus. There's a whole bunch of them, and, and some of you probably know more about this than I do. I think there were 12 primary Roman gods. And um, like many pagan faiths, success in life was equated with having a good relationship with the gods. In other words, don't annoy the gods. Keep them happy. Because they believed that their fate was in the hands of the gods. If they weren't keeping them happy, things would go badly. They needed, uh, uh, conversely, if they kept them happy, life in general would go well. Their, their crops would grow. They would be able to defeat their enemies in battle. Things would go well for them. So they wanted, they wanted to make sure that they kept the gods happy. So that involved uh, this sort of mystical prayer, involved these, these sacrifices they would make to the gods. And, and they said to these Christians, they were sort of reasonably tolerant of the worship of non-Roman gods by non-Romans. So they would say to these Christians, yeah, sure, worship your one god, but also worship our gods because we need to keep them happy. Of course, the Christians wouldn't do that. They would worship their one true God and only that one true God, and that really annoyed the Romans. Another thing that upset the Romans was that the Christians, living as a community according to the ethical values of this God, 
Now, those values are reasonably familiar with the, to us today, but they were actually quite foreign to the Romans of that day. An example is regarding um, an adult Roman male of the day could have multiple sexual partners. He would have his wife, who was there to have children. He would have his mistress, who was there primarily for companionship, although there may be a sexual element to that. He would, as well as that, he would see prostitutes, which of course is for sex. And as well as that, if that's not enough, he would also, it was also quite acceptable for this adult Roman male to have sexual relations with a teenage boy. It was perfectly acceptable back then. It was very common. So they had all these sexual partners. Compare that with the Christian sexual ethic. Okay, a Christian had a wife. That's it. A Christian had a wife. The wife was there for having children. The wife was there for companionship, for sexual relations. The wife was everything. And when the Romans looked at that, especially in, con in conjunction with their refusal to worship their gods, they would see these Christians as appearing antisocial or even subversive. What are you guys doing? You're messing with the system. Just fall in line. Live the way we're all living. Don't mess with the system. And it appears that there were widespread attempts to pressure Christians back into conformity with the surrounding culture. In other words, just pull your head in and get in line with the program. And the purpose of this epistle, this letter of First Peter, is to counteract this pressure. It's to encourage these Christians who are facing this persecution. So there's a very short passage we'll look at today that has a, a huge amount in it. And the passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers... In other words, they speak badly of you. They may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Notice the, the key phrase there. They may see your honorable deeds, right? That's conduct. That's your behavior. And glorify God. This is talking about their conduct, their deeds, bringing people to faith in Christ. So we'll look at a key phrase there. I urge you as aliens and strangers... Now, before looking at what is meant here, it's helpful to rule out what is not intended. It's unlikely this phrase is intended to mean that Christians are away from their true home in heaven. Now, that idea is seen in the New Testament, but as used here, the term is used to define a horizontal relationship with respect to society, not a vertical one with respect to God. So the, the idea of aliens and strangers has been described by one biblical scholar as a transparent distance in relation to society, a distance from its values, ideals, institutions, and politics. So what are we saying here? We're saying on one side we have the values and beliefs of the Roman society, and on the other side, Christian values and beliefs. They're not kind of close. They're not intermingled. They're completely different. And, and this, this distance, this distinction between them is, will be important as we carry on. Now, this phrase, aliens and strangers, is likely drawn from Genesis 23, verse 4, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament, many of you probably know, was originally written in Hebrew, but a Greek translation was made. And this exact phrase is found in Genesis 23, verse 4, when referring to Abraham in Canaan. Now, this is not accidental. 
By making this connection to Abraham, Peter reminds his audience of their place in the long tradition of people chosen by God and called to social and religious distinctiveness in the places where they lived. Right? That was true of Abraham. And it makes the important point to readers that rejection by society does not imply alienation from God. In fact, on the contrary, it means the exact opposite. And this is a very important point for Peter's readers to understand because they were being rejected by society. But rejection by society for them does not imply alienation from God. Now, just to be clear, we're not talking about rejection for being rude or offensive to those people around you. It's talking about rejection because you are living according to the one true God, the ways of the one true God, amidst the people who are living very differently. When you do that, you're smack in the middle of God's will. One key question to consider here is whether this phrase, aliens and strangers, is to be understood literally or metaphorically. In other words, when they say aliens and strangers, is it, are they literally foreigners born somewhere else? Well, no. Most scholars these days believe that it's the reader's status as God's people that makes them aliens and strangers on earth. In other words, it was their conversion to Christianity that makes them aliens. So as one scholar put it, the cost of discipleship for Peter's Christian audience is that they were rendered aliens and strangers in their own home, in their own home communities. I don't know if you've many of you had that experience, but I've experienced it myself working in IT, surrounded by mostly non-Christians. I felt sometimes, I mean, it's a, it's a New Zealand culture, I know the New Zealand culture, but I felt like a stranger myself amidst these people because of my Christian beliefs. So what we're meaning here is, is people who just, they have a, a sense of, they th think differently, they have a completely different worldview. See, this is why Peter is saying, I urge you. He's saying, you have this new identity. Live according to it. See, out of this identity should flow the corresponding ethical conduct so that your lives become examples of your divine calling. And the goal here is to disarm your critics and lead them to glorify God. So Peter here reaches back to Jewish tradition to make the point that foreignness for God's people is the flip side of election, of being chosen. In other words, it's part of the package. This is part of the deal of being chosen. This is part of believing existence in society. This tells us that as Christians, our status as foreigners is exactly as it should be. This corresponds to our calling. And we actually have a choice to make. As we see in James 4 verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So friendship here with the world does not mean making friends with people in the world. It refers to taking on worldly thinking, thinking that ignores God and making this thinking part of who you are and, and how you live. So this is not what we are called to. We are called to foreignness to that way of thinking. And actually, for Peter's readers, this understanding of their identity is very encouraging. Because, as one, one guy put it, he said, the situation of societal exclusion and persecution can thus, insofar as it is understood as the result of belonging to God, be positively interpreted and thereby accepted. Well, what's he saying here? He's saying, actually, this thinking flips it all on its head. 
instead of thinking that you've messed up because you're being persecuted, that you've done something wrong, this actually can be seen as a good thing because it tells you that you're living exactly the way God is calling you to live amongst the society you're in. So he was writing this as an encouragement for his readers, and I think this message is actually tremendously encouraging for us today. It tells us that when we live this way, we are, in fact, right in the middle of God's will. There's another short passage there that we'll look at from these verses. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, we are simply meaning non-Christians. So when we look at the context of 1 Peter, Christians being harassed and even persecuted, one might expect the author to kind of adopt a, a negative perspective towards outsiders and to tell them that they should separate from them. But actually, the author, while acknowledging the audience's suffering, he's directing them to a Christ-like response, right? one that is characterized by non-retaliation. Right? Don't, take, don't take revenge. That's not part of what you, you're being called to. Uh, gentle defense and acceptance of innocent suffering. So the purpose of this, where possible, is to establish a harmonious relationship with the outsiders, not separation from them. Right? The, it says, live honorably among the Gentiles. Right? To among means you're in amongst them. He's not saying try to separate yourselves. Get in amongst them and show them this distinct way of living. So whatever harassment or persecution you might be facing in your own life, particularly as a result of your faith. We're not called to separate as a result of that. As difficult as it may be, we're called to stay right there in amongst the people that we're called to live among and to be a witness to them by how we respond to that persecution. So the, the Greek for honorably can also be translated good, as it is in the NIV. Now this call to goodness is based on the idea, the understanding that both Christians and non-Christians recognize good behavior, but with different understandings of what constitutes good. So this is not a call for Christians to tone down their, their radical goodness ethic in order to bring it in line with the surrounding culture, even though there's a lot of pressure to do that. And the ethic was radical. For example, just the idea of forgiving your enemies. This was completely foreign to the Romans of that day. They didn't forgive their enemies they would retaliate against their enemies. They'd take revenge. If they were hurt by their enemies, they would hurt back. And they would hurt bad. So this idea of forgiving your enemies was a completely foreign concept. See, it might be tempting for us today to kind of blend in where we are. You know, maybe a little gossip. That's okay. Maybe on your tax return, you don't need to declare that extra bit of money you earned because, you know, everybody's doing it, right? Or... Maybe complaining about the new boss at work or this annoying colleague you've got. Or this new project that you've been assigned to that's a nightmare. Well, actually, as Christians, we're not to complain. That's just one example. But it's so easy to do, isn't it? Everybody around us is doing it. I notice this all the time uh, when I was working in IT. There are so many things to complain about. But God's calling us to something different. See, the requirement to be holy as God is holy it's 1 Peter 1.16. It tells us that goodness for Christians is to be defined by God, not society. Society thinks very differently from us, uh, as you know. For example, regarding euthanasia, 
Who's been following the uh, end-of-life choice bill? A few of you? So you might know that it's now passed its second reading in Parliament. So this tells you what society thinks about euthanasia. Um, abortion laws are being reformed in New Zealand to become more liberal. Um, it, they're, heading, they're looking at completely decriminalizing it, which would make it really easy for a woman to get an abortion whenever she wanted without anybody knowing, including her family. So here we see what the society thinks about the value of life. It's very different to what God thinks about the, the value of life, the sanctity of life. So this, this is why goodness for Christians is to be defined by God and not society. Well, why is this distinctive lifestyle, this, this radical ethic for living so important? It's because this is the behavior that will get the attention of the world. This is the behavior that will catch their attention. They might not like it. They might reject it. They might reject us as a result. But this is what will get their attention. See, if we just blend in, well, they won't notice anything because they'll see in us exactly what they see in the rest of society. So why would they even pay attention? Why would they take notice? An example of this is uh, a number of years ago, I was working as a software tester. And uh, I was working on this project. It was software automation. And so we needed the computer environment to be set up just right. We needed access. Our computers needed access to certain other servers and computers on the network and to different programs. But the client we were working for had very restrictive policies about computer use. So we were having trouble just getting access to the software that we needed, even though we just needed this to do our job. So it was getting quite frustrating. They asked us to do this job, but they're making it really difficult to do it. And we had deadlines coming up, so these delays getting access was actually getting really frustrating. And I found myself frequently getting frustrated. There were three of us in the team, actually all of us were. And every time that happened, I just said to God, God, just please give me the strength to, to keep going, to keep cool and not lose it, because the times I really wanted to. And um, thankfully, God did. God gave me strength to carry on in those situations. This other guy on my team was also getting really frustrated, and he was venting his frustration frequently, um, which was understandable in a situation. <clears throat> but I think eventually he must have noticed something different in me, because he just said to me, look, what's, what's up with you? You never complain. Look at what we're facing here. You just never complain. Now, I wasn't intentionally doing this to evangelize or to witness to this guy. I was just trying to get through the day without losing it. But... Because of what God did in me, because of the strength God gave me, this guy noticed something. He actually noticed something in me, in me to the point where he commented on it. And that was, I mean, for me, that was really encouraging. Uh, I don't think I used that opportunity to um, respond to him in a way that pointed him to God very well. I wasn't quite prepared for that. But the point is, he noticed in me something very different from what he saw around him. And I suspect that in your lives, if you're living this way, People may well be noticing something different in you, even if they don't say anything. People don't always comment on that. I was fortunate that this guy did, and that was encouraging for me. But I'd encourage you that when you live this way, people will notice a difference, even if they don't say anything. And that conduct may well have moved this guy on one step, on that scale that we looked at earlier, that angle scale, towards faith in Christ. So as a Christian, people notice your conduct. Right? They notice your behavior. Your conduct can lead people toward faith in Christ. 
<clears throat> those are two of the summary points that we started with and that we're finishing with. And there's one other point that is not on your outline. It occurred to me after these outlines were printed that there's one other point that should be there because it captures well <clears throat> the, that idea that we've been talking about in the last few minutes. So you might want to write this in. It's not on your outline, but I'll give it to you now. The third point is that the conduct that will lead people to true faith in Christ is radical obedience to God's word. Now, I'll just run through that again because normally we just give you like a little fill-in to write down. The conduct that will lead people to true faith in Christ, not watered-down faith, not some watered-down version of Christianity, but true faith in Christ, is radical obedience to God's word. Now, as the worship team comes up, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the faith you've given us and for the hope we now have and the future you have in store for us. We know that many people around us do not have this hope, this future. I thank you for the privilege we have of sharing our faith, and I pray that our faith would grow and so would our obedience to your word. And that as it does, that this radical obedience would shine your light and show your love to a world that so desperately needs to see it. Lord, may we live our lives in such a way as to bring many people into a relationship with you, a committed relationship, a lifelong relationship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.